This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel The Immortalists, first with the author, Chloe Benjamin, and then with my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. How would you live if you knew when you would die? This is the question confronting the four gold siblings, Varya, Daniel, Clara, and Simon. In 1969, when they are children, a fortune teller predicts for each of them the date of their death. It's superstition, silliness, they know this. But words have power. The prophecy follows them as they choose their paths into adulthood. Simon heads to San Francisco in search of an authentic self. Clara becomes a magician, an illusionist, a performer of death-defying feats. Daniel studies medicine, but as an army doctor, instead of healing, he deems young men healthy enough to send to war. And Varia, the eldest, turns to science, the opposite of magic. But her field of study, how to extend the lives of primates, is perhaps her own version of a death-defying feat. As they live their lives and face down their deaths, each must find the path to writing their own story in a world where uncertainty and loss are pervasive, but love is enduring. I had the opportunity to talk with Chloe Benjamin last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Chloe Benjamin grew up in San Francisco, received her B.A. from Vassar College and her M.F.A. from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Her first novel, The Anatomy of Dreams, received the Edna Ferber Fiction Book Award and was longlisted for the 2014 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. The Immortalists is her second novel. She currently lives in Madison, where it is even colder than it is in New Haven right now, with her husband and her cat. Chloe, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, Chloe, I like to begin at the beginning, and I'm always curious to know with writers, where did this book start for you? What was the initial seed that grew into this novel? You know, I always have trouble identifying the initial seed because it was so many years ago. I've been working on the book for about five years, and I just had this image of four children who go to see a fortune teller and how things spiral out from there. But I can't even remember the exact moment when I sat up or had that light bulb. So over time, I added to it and I got to know each of the siblings and some of them took longer than others. But there, I do know that there was always that basic seed and and the structure was always there for me, which is that the book follows each of the four siblings individually one picking up where the previous one left off. And so this question, this question that kind of haunts the book of, if you knew when you would die, how would you live? I kind of wondered whether the book started for you with that question or whether it started more with these characters. I think it was the characters. And that uh, that great question was something that my publisher came up with, but it wasn't, I mean, that certainly is the question of the book, but I didn't have that sentence in mind when I was writing. I think for me, it was more about, I don't even think that the characters know that they know when they're going to die, if that makes sense, because they don't know whether the prophecies are true. So for me, it was more about how would these people respond to 
this knowledge that whether or not it's true, how would this content kind of work within them? So it was, I think it was more of a character study in that way. I didn't go into it assuming that these were actually going to be their dates of death or that the woman, um, the fortune teller is right. And so talk to me about this idea of four siblings. I, I feel like when I was growing up, I read all of these books in which there were four siblings. You know, there's like Little Women and there's all these books by E. Nesbitt. And I was always fascinated by that particular dynamic. But where did that come from for you? You're so right. There really is this trope of the four siblings. And I think for me, too, it probably came in part from growing up and reading some of those same books from the line Witch in the Wardrobe mm-hmm. to so many others. I think there is a symmetry to four and a fullness that I really liked. And I was interested in the way it created opportunities for all kinds of cross relationships. So, you know, two is obviously so insular. And I think three siblings as well as with three friends, there's this very particular triangulated tension, but four things really open up. Can I tell you that that is exactly why I had four children? Well, I was just going to say, I was wondering if you noticed that in your own kids. Like, was it a big change from three to four? Well, they're they're all very close in age, so I don't know that it was early enough to, you know, that there was enough ability to tell. But I definitely had that thought about, you know, when there's two, it's always just you against the other one. You're either always for or against each other. When there's three, there can be this dynamic of two against one. But when mm-hmm. there's four, there's this sort of opportunity for shifting alliances and mm-hmm. not and no one necessarily being left out and it was just a kind of dynamic that i always aspired to and i think yeah. it does play out that way to a certain extent yeah i think you're absolutely right and i'm always curious about how alliances shift as you say in surprising ways there are essentially there's kind of two two likenesses in the book the younger siblings are more similar and closer and then the older siblings are similar, even if they struggle with their closeness over time. But there are also interesting alignments that go other ways. And those were kind of fun to think about and figure out. Now, all four of them have stories that are really different from each other. In some ways, it almost felt like I was reading four different books when I was reading this. I mean, they're obviously tied together. But, you know, you have you have uh, Simon, who is in San Francisco during the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and you have Clara, who has this whole life in Las Vegas with the magician, and Daniel, who's an army doctor, and then Varya has her own career as a scientist, and she's studying longevity, and both not just the settings, but their whole trajectories and their stories or narratives are so different. And I wonder, you know, how much of, of each of their stories did you know when you started, and what kind of research does it take to write each of them? That's a great question. And it was interesting to me because I knew most about Simon, second most about Clara, and those happened to be the first and second sections in the book. And so I wonder if subconsciously I started with them because it was a way to kind of ease myself into a book that I knew would require a lot of research. Um, Simon's section, even though he himself is very different from me, I'm not a gay man like him. I'm from San Francisco and I grew up with gay parents and I also was a ballet dancer. So I share a lot of DNA with that section in a way that might surprise readers. So it was really great just to not have to look up at Google Maps when I was writing that section. You know, I knew the streets and I and I knew ballet and and then leading into Clara's 
I always knew that she would be a magician and I had this image of her as a kind of nomad. And that said, the first two required a ton of research, despite my familiarity with San Francisco and with dance. It was a real deep dive into the 70s in the AIDS crisis at that time. For Clara's session, she's kind of exploring magic through the uh through the 80s and 90s, and the world of magic was totally new to me, as was Vegas, where she ends up. And then by the time I came to the second two siblings, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I feel like I've written <laughs> two books and there's two mm -hmm, more. Mm -hmm. And so those were a bit more challenging. I felt like it took me longer to get to know Daniel and Varya. And, and especially Varya, I found Varya's section so particularly interesting because her career was so kind of specific. And so where did that come from for, for you? You know, this idea that not only is she just a scientist, which makes some sense, you know, like she's the, she's the rational one, she's the sensible one, but this very particular mm -hmm. research she does with these primates around longevity. Yeah. How well, did that evolve? I knew that I, evolve, I guess. A and a longevity researcher in particular, which is um, the science of lifespan. And in particular, Varya is trying to figure out not just lifespan, but health span. So increasing the... Um, healthy years of one's life. But for years of working on it, she was looking at a totally different organism, which is something called the immortal jellyfish, um, Turritopsis dorni. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. There was a New York Times article about it years ago that I came across, and I found it totally fascinating and perfect for the book. And it's essentially uh, an organism that, when it's on the brink of death, can revert to the polyp stage, the first stage of life. So it's kind of like a Benjamin Button, mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Button organism. And I thought, this is perfect. This is, this is what Varya is studying. And I pushed on that for years, and I was Skyping with scientists and reading academic articles. And ultimately, I realized, I couldn't make it work because scientists in the real world don't know how this creature does what it does. So neither could Varya. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find a way to craft a narrative and an arc around something that remains so mysterious. So I found myself looking at you know, University of Wisconsin in Madison, where I live, and looking at what kinds of research they're doing. And I stumbled upon this study in primates, looking at whether limiting caloric intake can extend lifespan. And when I saw that, I had a similar light bulb moment as the one I had with the jellyfish when I realized this maybe is what Varya needs, not something that's kind of celestial and mysterious, but something that is really earthy and grounded and almost human-like to shake her and um, to contrast with how much she lives in her head. I want to go back to something you said before when we were talking about Simon and you were talking about the ways in which you are different from him. And, you know, there's a lot of that in this book. You're writing characters who, in at least external ways, are quite different from yourself. You know, Daniel uh, is a male. Simon is male and gay. Varya suffers from OCD. Clara seems to have perhaps some mental health issues of her own, some struggles with alcoholism. And I wanted to ask you how you get to a place where you feel like you can inhabit those perspectives mm -hmm. and which mm -hmm. maybe was the one that was the hardest for you to find a place of authenticity from. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot. I pay really close attention to the conversation about 
you know, how to, how and whether to write characters who veer from your personal experiences. And I want to believe that writers can exercise imagination and write about people who are very different from them. But I also firmly believe that if you are going to do that, you need to do it with integrity. And for me, that starts with immense research. So for Simon's section, for instance, I um, interviewed people who had lived at that time and people who are living as gay men today. I watched documentaries and archival footage. I read newspapers from the time. I visited a lot of landmarks on foot. I, I basically tried to totally immerse myself. And it does take a while until, as you say, I feel that I have, uh, you know, the right or the knowledge to write these people. So as far as the hardest one, they were all hard in different ways. And there are all pieces of me in each of them that made it easier. Varya, in some ways, was the hardest. And in some ways, she is the most similar to me. I don't like to admit it because I would prefer to think that I'm more like Simon and Clara, but I think I am more like Varya. I'm a warrior. I don't have the same level of control issues that she does, but I've suffered from anxiety for most of my life. And so some of the writing in her section, even if I don't have an OCD diagnosis was the most personal that I'd done. So I guess I, I find it hard to write about people who are different from me, but I also find it hard to write about people who are similar to me. Um, they both present different kinds of challenges, but I think research and empathy are the, the best way that I've found to give myself that permission. Do you feel like there are lines that you as a writer wouldn't cross in terms of writing someone who is different from yourself? I do. I think it has to do with the space in the novel that a character who is profoundly different from me takes up. I, for instance, don't wouldn't write a book that has as its main character a person of color because that is not my story to tell. At the same time, it was important to me to populate the immortalists with a diverse cast of characters because I want the book to be true to our world. I happen to be white, but the world is not full of white people and I want to be responsible to all kinds of people who might come to this book and to the world as it is. But again, I think a story that focuses really deeply on the internal experience of a person of color, just as an example, would be one that isn't mine to tell. So Clara, to my mind, in some ways was a really interesting character because she might be the most unreliable of the lot. And the end of her story, especially, made me look back at everything we've heard from her perspective with kind of renewed skepticism. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that choice to write that unreliability into her character mm -hmm. and, and what you felt like that does to your narrative. Well, I guess I think, I'll, I'll back up and say that um, when I was doing press for my first book, I got some questions about the narrator being unreliable and she is, but I had never thought of her that way because I think every narrator is unreliable. Mm -hmm. Every narrator is telling their own experience just as every person in, in the stories we tell each other is, is unreliable in terms of some kind of objective truth. So to me, she's actually not any more of an unreliable narrator than any of the others. She does believe things that are 
less tethered to reality. And so I think that that takes on perhaps a different meaning as you realize the depth of her struggles. But I also wanted to create space for the possibility that she sees things differently and that may not be wrong. We still don't know for sure how the rational and the irrational or the earthly and what's beyond interact in our lives. And so I guess I, for me to write a character like her, I have to do it from a place of non-judgment and total inhabiting of her experience. And so I believe her as I'm writing her. So we, we've talked a lot about these four core characters of these siblings, but you have these other characters who emerge in the story. You have Eddie, the cop who first encounters Simon as a runaway in San Francisco, but he, he continues to play this role in the Gold's lives over the years. You have Robert, who is Simon's lover. You have Ruby, who's Clara's daughter. And, and they were very, um, very alive to me as well. And I wondered, again, if, you know, it's, it, it's, it, it was clear that the book, kind of the core of the book started with these four siblings. So I wondered how these characters kind of came to be in your writing process. Yeah, I really fell in love with all those characters, so I'm glad you bring them up. They, and they all have a slightly different story. Uh, Eddie, for instance, in early drafts of the book, there were two cops who picked up Simon, and he was one of them. They were both nameless. And then I thought, I, I'm always trying to reduce things that the reader has to remember or that I'm asking the reader to ingest if it's not important to the book, especially because a book like this has so many moving parts. Mm -hmm. So I thought there don't need to be two cops. Like there can be one. So then there was one. And then I thought, well, he has this interaction, interesting interaction with Clara. And what if he comes back and is kind of this potentially menacing figure when she's doing her acts and somebody who kind of hovers in the background as she picks people's pockets and then I thought, well, what if he comes back again? And so it was sort of this organic uh, thing. And he winds up being the person who, spoiler alert, leads Daniel in the second half of the book back to the fortune teller that they met as children. So that was a really exciting and kind of organic process for me. Robert, I think, was always there and in my mind. And it was important to me to show both the positive and the negative sides of the gay community in San Francisco at that time. Robert is black and Simon is white. And even though they're both gay men at this moment in time, they have very different experiences of what that's like. The Castro, despite being a kind of haven for gay men, was very white. And in some ways it recreated the limits and the prejudices of larger culture at that time. So it was important to me to have a character like Robert to push back against and reframe Simon's reality, but also to be, you know, his his lover and his the great love of his life. And I adore Robert and love them together. And Ruby, I just fell in love with too. She is Clara's daughter, as you say. And in the second half of the book, she comes back as a young adult um, in her own right. And I really wanted to write a teenage girl who is badass and smart mm -hmm. and wears juicy couture and Uggs and has a razor phone and just, you know, I think teenage girls are put into a box in, in a lot of different ways. You can be 
you know, smart, or you can be into these kinds of superficial things. And that's just not how it works for many of them. So yeah, I think, you know, they all evolved in their own way, but in many ways, I see them as important as those, those main core siblings, because they are so important to shaping each of the siblings and vice versa. Can you talk about your decision to end the book with Ruby? Yeah, I really liked the idea of kind of passing the baton to the new generation at the end of the book. And I think just as Gertie says to Varya, spoiler alert, at the end, kind of, you know, I gave you all this opportunity. I know I didn't want you to wind up like me with the same kinds of fixations and, and limits and superstitions. In Ruby, I see somebody who has successfully moved beyond her parents. In the final scene where she gives this magic show, she has a sense of humor. She has a sense of confidence that her mother didn't have. And so for me, it's a really optimistic end. I always knew that I would not show Varya's death and that that one would be open-ended. So there was never a question of leaving, of whether to end the book with that. At one point, I did think maybe Gertie would die of natural causes in that final section, but I just realized I put the reader through a lot with this book, mm -hmm. and I don't think that it, they need another death. I think what they need is some healing and these characters as well. Well, Chloe, it has been terrific talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and for being such a thoughtful reader of this book. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. Annie and Jessica have appeared frequently on Book Talk, most recently discussing Owen Edgerton's novel, Hollow. Annie and Jessica, it's great to have you both back. Thanks for having us, Sid. It's great to be here with both of you. So there's a moment in Daniel's section of the book where Daniel, as an adult, confronts the fortune teller whom he and his siblings met as children. And in essence, he asks her to justify what she did, scaring children the way that she did. And she says, this is page 285, I wanted to do something good. So I think, okay, what do nurses do? They help people, people who suffer. Why do they suffer? Because they don't know what's going to happen to them. So what if I can take that away? If they have answers, they'll be free, is what I thought. If they know when they'll die, they can live. So I wanted to start our conversation by asking you both where you come down on this question, whether it's answers or uncertainty that give us freedom, and where you think the book ultimately comes down on that question, too. I was thinking a lot about that last night as I was rereading, and I, I think that the book ultimately comes down pretty strongly on it is better not to know. Um, I, I don't really see a lot of positives coming from the knowledge. I mean, Simon thinks on his deathbed that there was a positive coming from, from knowing, that he feels that that did give him the push he needed to go and be a gay man in San Francisco, and, and he sees a lot of positives from that. But I don't think Clara sees that as a positive, and, and I think that ultimately the knowledge does not help either Clara or Daniel. And, and where, where I came down on that was, was where Gertie comes down on it and then, you know, talks about it with Varya towards the very end. On 376, Varya has this realization that what Gertie gave her children was the freedom of uncertainty, the freedom of an uncertain fate. 
And then, you know, although she tried to give them that, they sought out the certainty of fate. And I don't ultimately think it helped them. Yeah, um, I agree with you. I do think that for Simon, there's a certain liberation. But I would say more, not only does the book come down on the side of uncertainty, the book seems to me to be suggesting that our beliefs, what we are told, our assumptions about what will happen to us actually shape our destiny in ways that are not particularly positive. So what this actually makes me think of is a scene also with Daniel that begins at the bottom of page 261, where his wife, Mira, wants to know the secret to a magic trick. It's a magic trick in which she picked a particular card from a street magician. She picks the nine of hearts, and she wants to know how this magician should, could have influenced her so as to make this happen. And on page 262, Raj and Ruby, two magicians in the story, say, forcing, when a magician manipulates your decisions. A magician uses language to steer you toward a particular choice, increased exposure. It's a classic technique. And so for me, one of the questions at the heart of this book was the extent to which not only did this particular fortune teller's predictions shape how the children behave in later life, but how do all of us shape how we act in the face of what we believe is going to happen? But maybe another way of saying that, Jessica, is not so much what we believe is going to happen, but our attempt to diffuse uncertainty. That I think that everyone in this book and everyone in life, to some extent, is uncomfortable with uncertainty. And so we look for answers and for explanations. And, you know, in Daniel's section, when he goes and confronts this fortune teller, you know, does he really believe that it's the fortune teller's predictions that have led to Clara's death and to Simon's death? Or is he just so uncomfortable with the notion that life can be so seemingly random, so unpredictable, and that it's so impossible to protect and save people that he would rather have this answer of it was her fault? You know, and I think so much of the book is about a quest for answers in the face of an uncertain life. And the larger question, whether everything is answerable. You know, I, I think that, that the book also believes, as Clara believes, in actual magic. So there's, there's sort of, that was a, that was a huge thing, I, I think, for me, reading it. A huge theme of, does magic exist? How much of the tricks or the, the moments of uncertainty in this book are just tricks that that have explanations and how much of them are magic and and you know you brought up that that, uh, that scene with Raj and Ruby explaining the trick to Mira Raj doesn't believe in magic he believes in tricks and he believes in creating situations where the audience thinks that something magical is happening but it's all explicable but Clara really believes in magic and and the book gives us these moments that aren't really explainable for her. You know, the, 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 the existence of the strawberries, you know, she does this magic trick with a little red ball and then the little red ball turns into a strawberry when she's trying to pitch their act in Vegas along with Raj. And she 
in the, in the narration, we understand that she doesn't know where that strawberry came from, but it's a real strawberry. And then later on, um, she does that trick over and over in their van just by herself. And there are this, there's this little pile of strawberry stems that Daniel finds there after her death. So we are given to understand that that is an actual inexplicable magical thing. And her belief in that magic and the importance of that magic seems to imply that there is a larger uncertainty that can never be explained. You know, it's so interesting to me, Annie, that that's what you took from the little pile of strawberry stems, because actually what it suggested to me was that she had the strawberries all along, and she was, in a sense, um, telling herself a story in which the strawberries materialized, but she had done the hard work to make them appear. I mean, I found the section about her magic so fascinating and this open question about whether magic is real and whether or not it's real, the incredible amount of hard work, dedication, and technique that goes into its creation, which was really paralleled for me both by Simon's hard work as a dancer, enabling him to create the magic of liftoff and transformation in ballet, and to some extent, the practice of ritual that accompanies Jewish religion in this book. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned ritual, Jessica, because I was about to bring up Varia, who has her own set of rituals that she adheres to to kind of make her life feel like it makes sense or that she has control over her life. And I think the book does a lot to to align the idea of these kinds of rituals that Varia, in her obsessive, compulsive need, uh, implements in her life with the religious rituals that her father that her father uh, adheres to and that um, and the magic tricks that that Clara teaches herself and then displays to everyone there's a there's a line on page um it's page 325 uh, in which it says Varia has had enough therapy to know that she's telling herself stories she knows her faith that rituals have power that thoughts can change outcomes or ward off misfortune is a magic trick fiction perhaps but necessary for survival and yet and yet is it a story if you believe it her deeper secret, the reason she doesn't think she'll ever be rid of the disorder, is that on some days she doesn't think it's a disorder. On some days she doesn't think it's absurd to believe that a thought can make something come true. Mm. That's that's really interesting in terms of taking that back to Clara and the strawberries and, and that need to believe in transformation. On, on 122, Clara reflects back on this moment where she and her family saw this red tide happening at the beach and then and she didn't know what it was and Simon compares it to ketchup and Saul compares it to the Nile and uh you know so you have Simon being you know very practical and American and Saul having having this kind of reaching back to to ancient Jewish roots and then later Clara finds out that it's red tide that it's algae and it says on, on 122 she recognizes that she recognized that something had been given to her but something else, the magic of transformation, had been taken away. When Clara peels a dollar from inside someone's ear or turns a ball into a lemon, she hopes not to deceive but to impart a different kind of knowledge, an expanded sense of possibility. The point is not to negate reality but to peel back its scrim, revealing reality's peculiarities and contradictions. The very best magic tricks, the kind Clara wants to perform, do not subtract from reality, they add. And so. That, that seems to connect very directly to, to what you were just saying, Sid, about Varya, 
um, about this, this, the moment where you move into belief, where you, you, you want and need to believe that something is magical, is this expanded sense of possibility where, where the story becomes something more than what is explicable. So this, for me, goes right back to where we started with the question of the fortune teller and whether what she gives the children is a gift or not. I mean, it seems to me that that beautiful passage you just read could describe exactly what she was trying to do for the children in imparting this sense of a different reality and giving them magical and precious knowledge, which brings me back to the question, you know, is it a gift? If we asked each of the siblings, was it or was it a gift or was it a curse to know this? What would each of them say? Well, it's interesting because you can think of it both ways, right? Like in some ways, she takes away the uncertainty. She takes away the magic because she gives them an answer. And in another way, she is, if, if they believe it, that is proof that there is more than just our reality that someone can see beyond. And it's, so there's this tension between, you know, which do we desire and which is better? And on the one hand, looking for answers, looking for an explanation that makes sense. And on the other hand, the notion that if you know everything and there's nothing beyond our reality, how can you, how do you go forward every day kind of knowing that at the end of it is death, at the end of it is loss? And it reminds me of something that Mira, Daniel's wife and then widow, says on page 371. She says, Initially, she says, I never met Clara, but right now I almost feel I understand her because suicide does not seem irrational. What's irrational is continuing on day after day as if forward momentum is natural. But then the narrator says to us, but Mira has done it. The impossibility of moving beyond loss, faced against the likelihood you would, it's as absurd as seemingly, as seemingly miraculous as survival always is. And it's almost like that ability to keep going in the face of everything that is difficult about the world is in itself a kind of magic. Mm -hmm. And I think that that ties in to the, the idea of transformation of people as well as of objects in, in the magic trick sort of way. When Raj is doing his patter in the, in the Vegas act, one of the things he says on 144 is, as long as you can transform, my friends, you cannot die. And so that, that idea, like, Mira can survive, can move past thoughts of suicide because she can transform in some way. And I think ultimately, at the end of the book, Varya begins to transform, maybe in a way that none of her siblings were ultimately able to do. Although, I don't know. I mean, I think Simon sort of does transform, but then dies anyway. So I'm not sure if that holds in terms. Yeah, he does. But, you know, but he had the life he wanted, I think, you know, I mean, he would have liked a longer life. He would have liked a fuller life, but he gets to kind of be his authentic self in a way that Daniel maybe never does. And Varya maybe is inching towards at the end of the book. But, you know, Simon finds dance and Simon finds Robert and Simon is able to express his sexuality and be at peace with who he is. And in some ways, it's like a very realized life, even though it's so brief. I think for me, and maybe I'm reading too much into the structure of the book, it seemed that as we went through each sibling's story, there was a narrowing. So you begin with this incredible expansiveness of Simon's joy and kind of wholehearted engagement with all that life has to offer. And then you move through Clara's 
tormented and yet really passionate and in some ways wonderful exploration of magic and what the world can be. And then Daniel's world is more cabined and he chooses a safer path. And then by the time you get to Varya, she's so enclosed. It's like she's locked herself in this voluntary prison. And so um, for me, it was almost like a tunnel that narrowed as we went through the book that only began to break open at the very end as Varya moves forward into this new life. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that shows up very strongly in, in a kind of a metaphorical way with uh, Varya's study of longevity and, and those monkeys on their reduced calorie diet um, in cages. And, and uh, in that conversation that Varya has with Luke, who, spoiler alert, turns out to be her son, that Luke says to her, okay, yes, you have to live a lesser life in order to live a longer one. And I think that, that you're right, Jessica, that, that up until that very end of that book, that does seem to be w- what the book believes. And, but then there is a kind of an opening at the end. And then ending with Ruby seems seems to say, okay, well, maybe there is a way to live both a longer and greater life, an expansion. What did you two both make of the jaws of life, of Clara's, you know, death-defying feat that she's known for, where she hangs by her teeth from this rope and is lowered to the, to the stage? Well, I mean, it, I think it's a really interesting trick, and I think it, it also, the interpretation of the jaws of life ties into a lot of what we've been talking about here, about what is magic and what's not. Um, on, on page 102 uh, in Simon's section, it says, it, it isn't magic what Clara has done. There's no trick, just a curious combination of strength and strange inhuman lightness. Simon can't tell whether it reminds him of, of levitation or a hanging. And then, of course, you know, what that gives you are the, those dual images of Clara, first as, as kind of like a superhero magician able to defy gravity and then of of her actually literally hanging herself with the rope from that trick when she commits suicide. So, I I mean, I think it's an intense and vivid and strange image. I was also struck by how she turns the jaws of life into the breakaway, that first it's just she is holding on by her teeth and doing what the, the trick that her grandmother, Clara, did. First, she's holding on by her teeth and, and just going straight down. And then she changes it so that the audience thinks that she's falling, that there's been an accident, and then she's okay. That there's that she has to kind of take it to a, a little farther edge even that it than it started as. And there's, there's so much talk in the book about being on the, the edge, just that very fine line between total success and total failure. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that, you know, the jaws of life usually refers to this contraption that actually cracks cars open to let people out, right? But for Clara, the jaws of life are about hanging on, about squeezing so tightly, which is almost like, you know, the duality within the book about seizing life or letting it go. And it's so... um, moving to me on page 192 when she takes the same rope that she has used to express this incredible ability to risk her life and hold on to it to save it, right? To, spoiler alert, 
commit suicide and that that becomes her final trick is to use the same rope to express um, to express the ineffability of life by ending her own, by proving the fortune teller right, which to me is one of the most interesting moments in the book. And yet, you know, she, I think, doesn't see it quite that way. And we are given her perspective, you know, we're, we're seeing it from her view, and there's never a moment when she thinks, I'm going to kill myself and end it all. You know, we're, I've been hanging on by my teeth, and it's time to let go. It's, it's, she, she has this belief that she can communicate with the world that comes, that she's been able to talk to Simon and that there is a world there. And so she's just moving. She's moving along this bridge to, to the ne- next place. And it's not, as, it's not a, fi- a finality, I think, in her mind. And, and whether that's because, you know, you can take a really prosaic explanation and say it's because she's suffering from some kind of schizoaffective disorder and in her delusions she believes it, or because you think that maybe she is right and maybe there is more to this world than we know and she has some insider access that the rest of us do not. You know, I think from her point of view, it's not a defeat. It, it, it isn't a renunciation of her daughter or her husband or her family. It is an embrace of uncertainty and, and of a kind of unknowingness that she's willing to venture into. And so seen from that point of view, it's a much less futile act. That's a really interesting interpretation, and Annie, I'd love to know your thoughts, because for me, I really saw it as her final magic trick, and that she was willing to make this sacrifice in order to make the magic true, which I thought was so interesting. You know, so on page 192, she says, she's been waiting for something to prove that the woman's prophecies were right, but this is the trick. Clara must prove it herself. She's the answer to the riddle, the second half of the circle. So your perspective gives me another point of view on this that I hadn't thought about before. Hmm. Yeah, I'm interested in in that idea, you know, Lucinda, as you were saying about, about Clara feeling like she is supposed to be a bridge between worlds, that she's supposed to bridge the living and the dead, and that, that she doesn't see it as, as a sacrifice in that way. I, I think that that's right, that she doesn't see it as, as a sacrifice exactly. It, it made me also think about, you know, tying again back to rituals and to Judaism and to all of the ways that, that the book picks up on the, the journeys of oppressed peoples. Uh, on, on 154, there's this line, if nothing else, this is about Clara. If nothing else, Judaism had taught her to keep running, no matter who tried to hold her hostage. So this this idea of again constantly transforming and and the movement of a people as you try to transform in order never to be held down. The, the idea that that the Jewish people move from one place to another, looking for a homeland, and then the Romani, the Gypsies, that the fortune teller comes from also have to move, constantly move, in order not to be caught, in order um, not to be persecuted. And then tying that also back to Raja's family, untouchables in India, who need to move in order to transform themselves. You know, Raj needs to come to America in order to become someone else and to be able to have a life. And even Robert, as a Black gay man, has to move uh, and and become someone else in a different place. And so so 
maybe that is what Clara is trying to do with that transformation, not just moving to a different physical or geographical place, but moving across the bridge into the world beyond death. There's an image that just really stayed with me from the moment that Eddie, the cop, who picks up, picks up Simon for being a runaway, when Clara comes to get Simon from the police station, Eddie sees her, and he says, it says on page 75, Clara looks like a superhero, radiant and vengeful. And I just, that was the image of Clara that stayed with me throughout the whole book, this idea of her, you know, this and this notion of, like, superheroes as the people who can transform and through transformation save others. And it feels like, you know, that is what she is trying to do in perhaps a somewhat delusional or, or you know, non-rational way. But she is trying to transform. So this makes me think about the transformation that comes uh, when we bear children, you know, which is something we haven't talked about, the way in which when we think about immortality, for many of us, it comes right through through our children. And, and um, you know, Ruby ends the book, but of course there's also Luke. And so I think about each of the siblings and how each of them manage or don't manage to transform into something else. And I think about Varya's choice to have a child, which ends up leading to such profound consequences. There's this wonderful moment on page 341 where we think, right, that she's had an abortion, that she hasn't born this child. And it says, for she stopped outside the Bleecker Street Planned Parenthood those 26 years ago and stood rooted to the ground as if by lightning. Inside her was an unfamiliar flutter. She looked at the Flatiron building in which the clinic was housed and wondered what would happen if she did not quash that flutter. She could make the choice she planned to make. Her life could continue on as it had been before the aberration and so remain symmetrical. Instead, she unbuttoned her coat to a flush of cold air. And I think that connects to another question this book is asking, very much connected with all the ones we've already been talking about, which is, again, this question of free will and choice and how much our lives are predetermined for us by what is passed down to us genetically. You know, Luke is not raised by Varya. He's raised by this whole different family, this Midwestern, you know, good farm family. Could not be further removed from the Jewish Lower East Side family of the Golds as, as it could be. And yet he comes to her and he sees that she has OCD. And he says to her, he says, the thing is, I have it too. I noticed it in you right away. And it's like he sees himself in her. And how much then does that predetermine what is to become of him? And how much can he choose to transcend? And I think that, you know, we see in Ruby, her choice to transcend. We see, you know, that she, in some ways, has so much that she inherits from her mother that they talk all the time about how much she looks like Ruby and she's doing the same magic tricks that Ruby did down to the jaws of life. And yet in the end, she decides that she's going to be a doctor. She's going to leave this life behind because she's going to find a different way, a different path. And that's kind of a very hopeful sense of, you know, yes, we have an inheritance, but our inheritance is to do with as we choose. That's interesting, too. I hadn't put it together that, that Ruby is in some ways the mirror image of the fortune teller who wanted to be a nurse 
or or a doctor and wasn't able to be and so she went to the magic that she had in her and ruby is making that opposite choice you know saying well i i know i want to help people and and here's the the magic trick way i know of helping people but i want to go beyond that to to being a doctor who can save people physically that's quite wonderful well, Annie and Jessica, as ever, it's been wonderful talking to both of you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sid. Thank you. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Lucy Cochran recommends the book Things Not Seen by Andrew Clements. I'm Lucy Cochran children's librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to recommend and review a children's book, Things Not Seen, by Andrew Clements. Bobby Phillips is just your average 15-year-old living in Chicago, when one morning he can't see himself in the mirror. It's not a dream, and he's not blind. Bobby is just invisible. His physicist dad can't figure out why this has happened to Bobby. Bobby's new condition means that he can no longer go to school or see his friends. Lonely, he meets Alicia. Alicia is blind, and Bobby loves to talk to her. Will they figure out a way for Bobby to become visible before he is stuck as invisible forever? The first book in the Things trilogy, this is a science fiction book for people who think they don't like sci-fi. The book takes place in our world and seems very plausible. The only science fiction element is that a character happens to be invisible. Bobby's invisibility is shown as parallel to Alicia's blindness. This book is an enjoyable read and will resonate with anyone who has ever felt different or invisible. This book is recommended for children and teens ages 10 and older and can be found with the chapter books in the fiction section of the New Haven Free Public Library Children's Room downtown or at our neighborhood branches. As a reminder, all books discussed in Book Talk can be found at the New Haven Free Public Library. Thanks, Lucy. On our next show, airing January 24th, we'll be talking about the new novel, Halsey Street, first with the author, Naima Koster, and then with my guests, Emily Moore and Sophronia Scott. Make sure to tune in. You can see what else is coming up and listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. And, as ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.